Good afternoon. This is Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have David Wevel here. Um, poet David Wevel, welcome to the studios of WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thank you, May. <laughs> well, it's lovely to see you here, and um, we're pre-taping the show. Um, this is uh, the mon- actually Thursday morning, October 15th, 2009. Um, David is in town. Uh, he's a visiting writer here at the university, and, and he'll be reading at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. Um, and without further ado, I'll read uh, a short biography that's included uh, on, on the posters. David Wevel was born a Canadian in Japan in 1935 and was educated in both Canada and England. He has lived in Burma and in Spain, but has made his home in Austin, Texas for the past 30 years. While resident in England in the 1960s and 1970s, he established a substantial reputation as a poet, publishing four volumes between 1964 and 1974. He won prizes, was represented in all the major anthologies, and was included in the renowned Penguin Modern Poet series. I believe it was the fourth the fourth edition. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, before his full collection, his first full collection appeared. With his move across the Atlantic, he fell from view in Britain, although his work continued to be published in his native Canada and, and awarded and, and well, well supported as well. Right, David? Yeah. His publications include Birth of a Shark, 1964, A Christ of the Ice Flows, 1966, and also Asterix, with Exile Editions, uh, published in 2007, uh, out of Toronto. He has published translations of Fernando Pessoa and the Hungarian Ferenc Juhas. Ferenc Juhas. Thank you, David. (laughs) David Wevel teaches English literature and creative writing at the University of Texas, Austin. He's a very kind man to help me with my pronunciation as well. I can vouch for him already. (laughs) Um, Well, David, it seems like um, one of the one of the most striking things to me is that you're a poet of the world, um, and uh, seemingly doing a lot of moving around the globe, and then sometime in the '70s. Alighting in Texas, and and for for some reason that I hope that you'll tell us, like you decided to make it your base. Um, what what happened in the the time? Because you've been, um, as we listed, uh, born in Japan of Canadian parents. Uh, you studied in Cambridge in England. Um, lived in Burma. <laughs> <laughs> and then somehow you've come to Texas. And I think, I wonder if, is it affecting your poems, your work? I don't know if you're able to talk about that, like with the places you lived. Oh. And then then landing in Texas. Yeah. Totally untrustworthy individual. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> Disloyal. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've been all over the place. But I've settled in Texas. But I've, I've been there since actually 1968. And... and uh, so that's 40 years, is it? Or more, 40 years, I think. Uh, and I raised a family there. And, uh, and it uh, happened accidentally. I had no idea how long I'd stay. And, and then the university picked me up, and, and uh, I just stayed. And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, prior to that, I moved around quite a lot. But uh, 
Uh, yes, yeah, so three generations of my family had been in Japan. My my father's side and my mother's side. My mother was born there, and, and my sister and I were born there in the 30s. So uh, uh, we were entrenched in Japan, in Yokohama, and uh, left Japan not long before Pearl Harbor and went to Canada. And uh, so I, I was... How old were you? How old were you then, um, David? Were you very young? Were you about six or I so? I was five, five, I think. Okay. We were on the edge of five there when we left Japan. But but um, I've never been back, you know. I've, but though though I, I love everything I know about the country, except for certain wartime feats of theirs. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, well, but, and um, same about us, right? <laughs> In some ways. <laughs> know, yes, many I know, ways. I know. <laughs> But uh, I, I've, uh, yeah, I've wandered quite a bit, but I've settled down pretty much now. And I, I did live in Spain for a bit in the south of Spain in a village, uh, up up off the sea. And, and uh, I was in Burma for two years from 58 to 60, teaching at a, in Mandalay at a small college there. Were you teaching English then? Is yes, that what you were? English and history. And, oh, which is what you had studied at Cambridge that's right, that's right, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in Spain, <clears throat> when you were in the the south of Spain, what what town was that, David? It's a small village called Frigiliana, which is up up above Nerja, which is on the on the on the Mediterranean coast, uh, about forty kilometers north of Malaga, and but it's up in the hill there. Yeah. And and what what time mm-hmm. period of that in your in your writing life was that? Did you um, what did you go to this small village in Spain to do, and and what time did it? Was it after Cambridge? Or? Oh yes, yeah, oh, yeah, oh. yeah. It uh, well, it was a sabbatical year uh, from from University of Texas that first brought us there as a family, and uh, and uh, I, I have three daughters. Two were born. So they're all three there at the time. Am I right? Yes. And then we went back uh, uh, later on, eighty one, eighty two, and a house in that but um so i know that part of spain pretty well and oh so you have it's oh so you you have a base in spain I as don't. well as in austin i don't there was oh, a don't. divorce oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay okay but, but but what was it um since it was your sabbatical year was mm. that um was did you go there for the writing was it was that to influence one of the books uh, that it did do. I, uh, no single book came out of that, but but it's been peppered through a lot of the poetry. You know, it, uh, I, I'm not good at projects. You know, I, I can't say I'm going to sit down and write this or that uh, and bring it to completion. What tends to happen is that things get strung out through various pieces and bits and poems and that, and so nothing reaches closure. Right? But, uh, Thank goodness. But uh, you know, as a Piscean, I guess that that figures. <laughs> That's right. You're 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 nimble in the waters, aren't yes. you? Kind of yeah. elusive mm-hmm. there, um, which fits with um, your your um, your latest collection um, published by Exile Editions that mm-hmm. uh, Michael Callahan was was kind kind enough to um, send a copy. Of to me asterisk, <laughs> because then that's it's the book itself is made up of these these numbered pieces, and each of the pages starts with with one of the asterisks. It's, so it's really right. yeah. it, it's like your core these pieces. That yes, are interconnected. yeah. Well, it was interesting. I, I was going through a period where I was not writing 
full poems or whatever. And, um, Is that uh, what you feel about these uh, poems? Well, I, I decided I'd, 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 um, I'd do play, play judo with it, I suppose, and, and um, r- rather than continue to try and press for page uh, poems that went on for two or three pages or something, I decided, what the heck, uh, why, not, uh, why not stick with what is short? And uh, what I found was that if I was going beyond a certain length, I, I was mistrusting myself, I, I, meaning to tell lies, you know. So, so I, I let the poems conclude where they would, and they're all brief, very brief. But they are really, really like uh, like uh, asterisks, which which are little stars, you know, that that refer you to some other place to for other information. And uh, I, I came to rather like that, and it is interesting because th- there are forty nine of them, and they came in groups of seven. Without my intending that, and seven, and then a bit later seven, and so on, and as I was coming into the thirties, I said, "Well, obviously this is going to end at forty-nine, which is the perfect multiple." <laughs> or you would have had a lot longer to go. Right? Uh, yeah. It would have been a big, yeah. big much bigger. <laughs> but it is is the shortest book, and and uh, and in some ways the cleanest because. It, but, it is very clean. Yeah. Can you? What do you mean by that, David? Well, is, it's it's uh, because the brevity of the poems, I think, and uh, I think I think the poems are, are, t- are small, small meditations, really. They, they are perceptions. They pick up a point and carry it on. But as they go on, I think they begin to link uh, as one moves through the book, and themes recur. And one one friend said to me, it, it could be read as a, as a discontinuous long poem. Which is not the way I intended it, but, but um, well, because there is the chronology, the numbers giving you that guidance. Yes, that's well. Maybe when we come back on mm. the air, then you you'll read us a couple of those. So if you like, that yeah. would that would be great. And I did bring my reading glasses. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, we'll get okay. to that. <laughs> But um, mm. and 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 how have you worked with? It seems like you had a chunk of these published in Exiles um, mm-hmm. magazine yes. before, and it was interesting to to note in the back of where you have the acknowledgments, David, um, that Exile, the Literary Quarterly, Volume Thirty, Number One, it's, they published eleven through twenty one. Yes. And so was that, did you find homes, because one through seven, Borderlands, Texas Poetry Review. Right. And then, so did you find homes for the, the first, well, up to number 21? Yes, and I then, did. And, and uh, um, oh boy, there's a magazine run by, what the heck, I've forgotten the name, Journal, uh, run out of England by a Canadian, actually, uh, called uh, Future... Something. Oh, Future Welcome. The Future Moose, Welcome. The yes. Moosehead Anthology. Yes, yes. <laughs> And then I had then se- the first seven were actually um, uh, published in, in Spain too in, in a journal. Uh, <gasps> Toria, to- Revista Cultural. Yes, oh, yeah. and they were translated by, by my wife and I, and uh, into Spanish. Oh, that's lovely. So, so uh, they did an article, an article about me, but so they had them there. And, yeah. the, and then the then the re, then the forty nine were united in this book Asterix out of Toronto Canada. Uh, yes. <laughs> we're going to take a short break and we'll Surely, we'll, yeah. we'll be back today. David Wevel here on the program. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. And today, David Wevel is here. His latest book, Asterix, out with Exile Editions. Um, and we're going to hear a couple of these poems. Uh, but first, I'd like to say thanks to Alex and Tex for engineering today, making us sound good. <laughs> Um, so David, we were <laughs> during the break. We were looking through the book, and then oh. we thought, "Why not at random?" There's something beautiful about that with poems. Let's isn't do. It? Let's do a bit, <laughs> bit of random. I'll just. I'll read a few. You tell me when you've had enough. And, <laughs> and I'll get that uh, well, then we'll just finish out the hour, and we'll do a, yeah, a reading of yeah. Asterix. <laughs> well, some of these have to do with history and images of history, and uh, both old history and more recent. Twentieth uh, century history. You said in the the uh, earlier, David, that there are pieces that connect to something else. When they when they were coming to be, um, mm. did you know what they like? They were an asterisk too, like no. where they the other connection in the no, world I, is. No, I, okay. I was running blind here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I was, there's a kind of almost an inner voice at work here, you know, without without an external structure of of, of thought or of. of uh, uh, intentional direction or anything I found, and there's something speaking in there. A lot of people have said this about themselves, but but David, don't is is that something that's also run through your work always? Yeah, it's I think it's so. not new in this book. It's just in a more striking form of spare. I, I think so. Clarity. I think, I, there's uh, there's a lot of imagery. That's something that seems to be part of my code, <laughs> but. Um, uh, and and there is here too pictures of in, in time or off time. Somehow. I'll read the first one just as an intro, and uh, it may not be comprehensible, but some of the images here do do uh, repeat themselves. I love these poems. I'm sure it'll be comprehensible. <laughs> this is asterisk one. Shredded pulp, glue of history, page upon page pressed flat. In every word, in and between each cry, a body, a someone, not clothed or naked or named. Let the sun attend to this, fingers of concrete, feet spared the grass. Cut us doors less tall, so we may enter on our knees. Look down, look down. And uh, <clears throat> number two, they're digging the field that took them in from exile in the sand. The man bent double can see where a woman lay down with her child. Aunt, she sings, come home to where distress has no other smell, now, ever. It's about certain European tragedies, but they go back to the desert as well. Time. Number three, it, it, it's an image in the Upanishads. It's got the notion of two birds on separate branches of a tree. One is eating a fruit and the other is watching it eat. And so you have your figure here of the uh, unconscious active bird who's feeding himself. And the bird of consciousness who's watching this but not eating it. It's, it's a good figure. So, two branches, two birds, one eating, one watching. If one were to fly off, the other would have no purpose. 
more to where you are than here I am. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely wow, <clears throat> like interconnected. I know. Right? We can't we can't escape each yeah. other. We need one another, right? <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> I know. I'll do a couple more if you like. This is about it's based on my granddaughter Isabella, who's now a charmer of fourteen. But this is when she was little. I noticed one thing about you know little boys and little girls when they exp- they ex- express exuberance in different ways. Little boys tend to sort of fling themselves around, you know, and damage things and and go at odd angles and flying into furniture and stuff. And little girls hop, jump up and down in place, higher and higher, kicking their legs behind them, you know. They, and that's a way of being exuberant. So this one is uh, the legs, legs, little girl springs up and down apart from where the wind goes. A part of the wind, who is a junkie with a clear head, a capsized star in its youngest sex, has her own name, jumps higher and higher to reach, to touch it. And I'll read one more. This is number seven. Is there life after poetry? All that the past caught would perhaps return to itself. Mind gone back now to life's proper calling, life. Some things will dance and others will lie still. If we detect a singing, it is theirs. Thank you, David. Welcome. Yeah. That was from David's book, Asterix, available from Exile Editions out of Toronto. So so it was perfect that you read seven, too. I might have missed one. Yes, I did I read seven. And and so they came in that chronology, and that's how you yes, there's you honored no, no, that. You kept it. I, I, there's no rearrangement. I didn't sort of edit it to... And is that normal? Is that a way that you work as well with with your other um, poems? Like how? Not so much because in the other books they tend to be titled poems, you know, and intact more or less, even if related. But there, there one tend to do a rearrange if necessary for publication. But well, because they also seem more mobile as the like units of themselves, mm. don't they? Yeah. Know how where you can. Um, I, I love in that last poem that you read, David, how um, if if we can hear any singing, it's theirs, but it's not. It could be the ones that are dancing or the ones lying down. Yes. <laughs> or both. It could be both. That's yeah. I think that, 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 that the thing about that poem, I asked that question fairly seriously because I was wondering whether I wanted to go on writing, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so if it's a life after poetry. Uh, uh, um, But also I was thinking more generally that poetry tends to be one of the voices we've we've, uh, uh, discovered and developed in that to to define the world, you know, and and the world outside ourselves, not just our human world. And and what... what, uh, I mean, if the if the voice suddenly went silent, if the radio suddenly cut off, you know, the, the poetry radios, what would be left? All these 
sounds of creatures expressing themselves and waves and wind and trees and so forth. And, th- and so no interpretation? No interpreter there, no, no, no poet to Would, uh, to would that interpret. be bad? Would that be... It's an open question. <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, what it is is that we would, we would be listening to other voices that, that, um, that are, are their own their definitions and expressions of what goes on. I suppose it sounds pretentious, but... But, um, but in a way, that not that in some ways like what the poet hopes to be listening to, honestly, yeah. anyway? Yes, yes. It's Whatever honestly means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think the determination to go on you know, expressing ourselves, oneself, you know, is, is something that we take for granted, you know, when we'll go on, when we'll go on writing or singing or composing or painting. Making. Making, that's, that's the good word. And and, uh, and we take it for granted almost. And then suddenly you might sit back one day and say, what am I doing? <laughs> and then th- there will fall a silence of some kind, you know, and out of that might, might come these other sounds that have been modified or obscured or whatever by by the the human sound I and and it almost seems like that's mm. what you said was surrounding the whole time of the making of asterix yes yeah yes it was written the book it was, all those poems were written out of out of out of um, almost incapability you know the, the sense that one wasn't pushing forward or or, or, or you know writing a long poem or something and uh, and uh, so what what is there there? So it really, it's a kind of questioning, I suppose. It's, it, well, it's almost mm. as if it's like you had the mm. a piece of material, like like listening to you, David, and and from mm. reading the book, where like this this chunk of wood, and then you're paring it mm. away into something that. So it's not, you know, going on for pages, and it's something the material that was there. Yes. And you're paring more and more away from it in some way. Yes. But it had to stop at 49. <laughs> <laughs> well, that were all the, those were all the blocks that you I had, know, the chunks you I had, know, right? And I've done precious little since, uh, which means that oh, some, no. something happened there which defined itself and, and shut me off, you know. But I, I don't know. So, yeah, Sorry. what did you do? Then what, what did you do after, like, that? Because I know you said you've mm. got... Um, uh, Let's see, a, a book of poetry and transla- translations um, coming out, edited by Michael McGriff, Truman State University Press in yes. 2010. Yes. Uh, what, that's, Mike did that. Mike was, this is entirely his own idea. It's extraordinary. And he know. was one of your students at he was, Austin. He was an MFA student, extraordinarily good poet uh, uh, from Oregon. Yes. And... Uh, he and, has uh, a connection to here as well with uh, with Britta and and who was it in the MFA? Uh, yes, you're here. absolutely right. And, and I met Britta, and they're they're going to be married, of course. And, and uh, this is wonderful. But uh, he's 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 a remarkable young. He, he's um he he himself has put out his first book, Dismantling the Hills, which is an excellent book. And and uh, and um, and he he's he's finished a Stegner Fellowship at Stanford and a Jones Fellowship. He's just working on his last year off, and also he's bringing out uh, uh, translations of Thomas Tranströmer's book uh, Sorrow Gondola, 
And he's, that's, you actually have an epigram of to row through the silence. Exactly. And, and that line appears in one of the poems. Exactly. That, that's well. one of Tranströmer's. That, that's Mike's translation. It's a very, very clean translation, to row through the silence. So it must have been great for him to actually find and work with you at Austin. Well, if we, we got on very, very well. He's an extraordinary <laughs> guy. And, uh, uh, but uh, he's, you know, he's going to go far. I mean, he's already gone far. But, but um, he, you know, he just said, I, I want to do this. And what it is, these are not new poems or work. This is going back over all the books and, and selecting. He selected, and, and including short prose pieces. And um, did you bring any of those those I didn't prose bring pieces, those, no. David? Okay, that's a another time. Yeah, that's called casual ties, <laughs> which can be misread casualties. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't intend that. Someone else told me that was with him. The subconscious yeah. at work. <laughs> the, the short, sort of rather strange prose. But, but, um, but some of those are going to be in there. But but what it is is a kind of compendium, I suppose, fairly long. Book. And uh, and uh, he he he's he was in, in total charge, you know. I I, I made suggestions and about certain changes and that, but but so it's it's a it's an act of extraordinary generosity. Well, and, and, and then time and effort and energy. And, but it must know. be also a reflection of your generosity to him as well, for him um, to want to to do that. And I think it's also mm. interesting because you have to trust someone a lot. There must be some sort of instinct you have where yeah. you know it will be shaped in some way mm. that will be true to you as well, even right? yes. or, or most. Yeah, because like, yeah. sometimes we can't see ourselves, can we, David? But somebody can right. see more. Yeah, exactly. But, but in a sense, it's, it's it's his book too because he's the he's the uh, begetter of it, and the you know. And, and, and the and the uh, realizer and all of that and so uh, well, one only hopes this could happen for everybody. <laughs> well, see, I look forward to reading it. Maybe maybe you'll come back and we'll we'll talk about it when it comes out because yeah. that'll be um, so next year. The spring, that, supposedly. Oh, in the spring. I think okay. I don't know. So the poetry and translations of David Wevel. We'll have to we'll look for that in spring of 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, David Wevel, um, his book, Asterix, we've been talking about from Exile Editions. We'll be back.
back. If you're just tuning in, you've got living writers on WCBN, <clears> FM, <throat> Ann Arbor. Um, <laughs> I'm T. Hetzel, and here's David Wevel, Wevel here in the studio with us. Um, David, so you've got um, another one of your, your many books, I will say, Other Names for the Heart, um, in your hand now. Yes. Um, could we hear a poem from from that one? or Yes, we can, if you like. Or, or the deer, because you have deer images and asterisks as well. It's a solo. I'll read a granddaughter poem, shall I? <laughs> this is Isabella when she's learning to crawl. <laughs> as I say, she's now, now a stunning a young woman of 14 who's just entered high school. And, and, uh, and it was always very independent and uh, determined. And uh, this is called Granddaughter. And she wouldn't recognize this now. Starting to crawl, she noses to earth like a mole. It is too hard for her. She must lie waiting like a seed until spring when the earth is softer. No, she is an animal. She can't wait. No says yes, and the arms brace hard and her fingers dig deeper. The carpet is a field of night filled with hidden dangers, hunters, shadows, cries. And later in dreams she will relive this sloth flight through exile from the first dark that would claim her again if it could. Straining now toward the faint horizon of human voices calling her home, Asking her, where have you been? We've waited a long time. Tell us what it was like back there. Thank you, David. <laughs> such <laughs> such like longing. There's, they, there's your, the haunting qualities yeah. throughout all your poems, even when it's about your granddaughter. It is. She's a wonderful person. She, even after infancy, she never took a nap. You know, she'd go off by herself into a little corner uh, and 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 uh, play with things or find something to do or you know like like preliterate children she she'd open a storybook or a picture book and you hear her reading it <laughs> but uh, is that what you were like when you were a child David? I have no idea. <laughs> there are just no living witnesses but <laughs> But um, yeah. on the first day at daycare, uh, 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 there came a time when the teacher said, okay, children, it's time for a nap. And all the little ones went and curled up like prawns around the floor. And Isa was very concerned. And she walked up to her teacher and said, I'm the kind of girl who doesn't like to nap. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm the kind of girl. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well, David, when did you start writing poems? Like, what was it? Li like, when? What's the earliest time you can remember when you were um, writing? Was it a poem that you wrote f first? I mean, maybe not your first words. <laughs> it was a poem. <laughs> it's somewhere in school, I think. You know, we had a school magazine. This is back in the early teens, I suppose. I don't remember writing as a child, but I like to draw pictures and, and paint and color and stuff. And when did that? Did or do you still do that? Do you, are you much. still painting? Not much. I, ne I never kept it up. Uh, now that I've retired, I think that um, I, I might try again. But I um, wonder why that falls away sometimes. Well, maybe it's replaced by words. You know, I don't know. But uh, 
there's no reason why it should have been, except that uh, uh, I, I never, let's say, developed or pursued it. When you went to Cambridge, was that a, a transformative moment for the 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 poems as like forms or as joining some sort of a community of or a continuum of poets in the world or in, internationally? That's very really interesting. Yeah. No, I well, I say I went to school in Canada, and uh, then I after high school I went to Cambridge, which is sort of unusual. Um, like right right after right after high, high school, school, yeah, and. Uh, and did my degree there. But um, I, I just thought, and, and in Canada is more the case than it would have been in the States, that, that England was the source and, and crucible of literature, you know, and of writing. Now, now, had I known at the time how rich in America was in that regard, you know, I would, but there I went to England. There, there's an but English, at that time, too, yeah. I think it wasn't it... Uh, the feeling 50s, was different, yeah. wasn't it? I, it I, was. I think it's... There's been shifts, at least on a... Yeah. Right. Every country is hopefully alive in this way. Right. <laughs> but then my family are split between England and Canada, or were, you know, relatives in England, and, and a sort of background there, too, so... So may- maybe it made sense to go and try to understand that part of yourself. Or? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go. I, I, I'd read, you know, a lot of literature, and most of it was English. In Cambridge, I mean, that's the big mm. leagues... Yeah, you know, it's very. I think it's changed now. It's um, uh, it's um, at the time it was a great privilege because you you know if you're in the, in, in a liberal arts uh, course or, or studying that at Cambridge, literature or philosophy, uh, you can more or less set your own schedule and uh, you you know the work that has to be done, the reading that has to be done. And you have to meet with your tutor every so often to read a paper and that, and get checked. And but nobody keeps check on your classroom attendance. And and if you want to sleep all day and and work, work all all, we'd be up all night. It's up to you. So so really, I, I think the thing there was that that you had to be independently able to read books and and find things out and and you know set your own. Kind of courses. With, Were with, you ready with, for that? Is that something? Is that something that you you could do and it fed you and you thrived? I think so. I, I read a lot as a child and, and as a teenager, and so I knew how to learn from books and where to look in libraries and how to read closely, really, to be in yeah. in it in yes. a text. Yeah. And so uh, it wasn't the kind of whip them up sort of atmosphere you get often in American colleges where, where you know, everyone's watching her every move. <laughs> right. What's that about, actually? <laughs> I, I mean, to, to, to what the heck? Like yeah, you said yeah, earlier. Yeah. About <laughs> but I think the, the, the opposite of that is you could be quite lazy, you know, and you could, you could, um, you could, whatever. But, but um, that, that's one thing I did appreciate, yeah. Is that not, when, not being regimented. Yeah. Is that when you found the group? The uh, no, the, the, directly after that, I left Cambridge in what fifty-seven, I think, and worked for a year in advertising in London. Uh, many writers I knew, poets, you know, worked in advertising. It was bread and butter, kind of thing. 
those days. Um, but but uh, I, I was introduced to the group by somebody, and, and um, his so-called group is these are usually Oxford and Cambridge graduate poets, you know, who are down in London by then. And uh, so it's an elite group in a way. It's already been vetted, and it would be hard to be part it, of it. It's a university, basically. That's the way it began. That's the way it started off, and uh, and in the late fifties, and. Uh, was Alvarez part of that group? No, that, no, no, he's not. He, he's a separate editor entity. Yeah, he's a reviewer and editor and, and critic. But um, th there were. Um, it, it was not a group that had a, a single aesthetic or, or, or you know, way of doing things. There were little conjuries of individuals there, and met every week to read each other's work and comment and that. And uh, so it's quite useful. So it wasn't uh, as if the group was of one mind, which no, sometimes no, no. you think of when yeah. you think of either like the, like even the term the group. Or, no, or <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a misnomer really, and and I think uh, it, it's uh, it makes people think of a sort of a cabbage or something, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or like a pack, uh, like in yes, West Side Story. I know. <laughs> but uh, no, there are no two people alike in it, and and. Um, and, and so it was, you know, self-help kind of, you know, mutual help. But but um, it went on for a while. And when I went to Burma in 58 and came back, the group was it was expanded and so forth. And more people come in. But, but uh, it, 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 I know it sounds as if it's a, it's a kind of a gathering of... But it's a loose, loose affair. Was it... was Did you meet at pubs or so? Like, we was met it at some someone's sort of house. Oh. Yeah. And the person who we met in served only tea. So there's a big rush on the pubs just before their meetings. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and then a rush to get out of the meetings to, before the closing time of the pubs. Which is pretty early in England. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, so not during the moments when you were together. It was mm -hmm. drinking, sipping tea, but before that, you could... You, you had to tank up a bit, you know, and as with all gatherings of people, it does. When when each of us or members of us began to publish our books, our first book, and that it became a little less less uh, viable because you know once people have published books, they don't want to sit there having their, their now mature work discussed. And, yeah, I don't think that's the right. I don't think that's the way to go, though. But but anyway. No, I, <laughs> Well, let's, we'll take a short break. Sure. We'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Mm. David Wevel, Wevel, I'm T. Hetzel, and um, we've got Alex and Tex here in the engineering booth. We'll be back.
you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today David Wevel is on the program. Um, David, um, I love, like, there's a moment, um, I, sh- I wanted to mention, there's a, a great website, the Olives of Oblivi- Oblivion, um, that has quite a long feature um, of you on it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if you were... You're prob- you've probably seen it, the Olives of Oblivion. No, well, it's no. pretty. It's a lot of good information, <laughs> mm-hmm. and many of your some some poems from different um, books of yours, um, mm-hmm. like Birth of the Shark, and mm-hmm. um, and and there's one poem um, called uh, Two Riders, and I love a couple of lines in that. Why erase the hazardous energy of life with what's merely apparent in the mind? Is that me? <laughs> you wrote that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I take your word for it. <laughs> yes. Is that, do you want to comment on that? Yeah. Can you deconstruct that for us? No. I don't know. It's, it sounds pompous a bit. But, but, um, well, taken out of context, too. Uh, 